There are a few people who understand the elements that make one a great UX researcher and Arvind Chandrasekhar is one of them. Head of UX research at Inmobi, Arvind didn't start his research career with any fancy title. He worked as an independent researcher for a long period of time, which also sometimes meant chasing your clients for payments. But his skills and passion made him survive the fragile freelance career, ultimately bringing him to head UX research at one of the promising Indian startups. In this episode, he shares his experience of working in research and what can help you become a great researcher. I am Sweekriti and this is India's first user and UX research podcast, Core User to UX. Welcome to the show. It's really great to have you. I actually got to know about you through your newsletter, which I know you don't like to call it newsletter because of how infrequently you post on it. But uh, whatever you wrote in it as a researcher resonated highly with me. A pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. Um, I'm glad that actually somebody reads it because usually I don't write for anybody to read it. It's just for me to sort of get it out of my system uh, and probably articulate whatever I'm feeling at that point of time. Uh, it's just a mental exercise I tend to carry out. And hence the infrequency of the infamous newsletter of sorts. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Whatever you have written, it's just it it just directly touches my heart, especially of all the experiences that you have written and plus the kind of research you do just for the sake of it, just because you have, want to have fun or just because some question is bothering you and not because your team wants something. That's right. something I mean it was really like for the first time relatable. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would recommend everyone to read that. Coming to our questions and uh, we are going to talk a lot, I have a feeling. You know, I was reading this book called uh, The Hour Between the Dog and the Wolf and uh, it's mostly about risk-taking and how risk-taking changes us. But there was this really interesting concept that traders have been trading since a very long time and when they have to take decisions under pressure, they develop those instincts and those instincts guide them in those high pressure, less time moments. Similarly, there was an anecdote in there where a nurse, just by looking at someone's face, pointed out that something's wrong with this person. And it turned out it was actually wrong. Something was actually wrong with that person. So the point here is the instincts you develop as a researcher what all should go into that or what all goes into it because research is very in-depth requires a very deep understanding and everything but at the same time we have real life and real world constraints in moments where we won't be able to have a lot of time in our hands so what should we maybe practice or have it in us so that we develop those instincts and what is the role of inherent quality versus some serendipitous moments so a little light on that so what you are referring to is actually what is referred to as in most laymen of all terms is called as a heuristic or a rule of thumb yeah yeah. Um, there's actually a considerable amount of work done by um this uh, guy called gerd gigan like i always massacre his last name um Gigenzinger or something of that sort. 
and he defines it as something called ecological rationality, which is basically the rule of thumb estimate that people tend to make uh, in arriving at predictions or making a decision is usually a lot more accurate than the most complex of all models which sort of are built, taking into account a lot of other factors and whatnot. So, you know, in it, so, so, so sort of distill what goes into a researcher's instinct is actually a, you know, it's, it's a hard problem because different people have different instincts for different problem sets. It all depends as to how one even sort of looks at the problem. Like, you, do they even consider that as a problem? Because a lot of questions that researchers get asked seem to have a but obvious common sense answer. It's almost like a knee-jerk. And there's a fair bit of understanding that one needs to have in terms of when you're being the voice of the crowd versus when you're the voice of your own bias. And that does require a certain bit of awareness of one's own biases. Like you said, instinct gets honed after, you know, considerable practice of, you know, um, making the same decisions, trial and error, you sort of, you know, fine tune your certain aspects and everything. And because most of the problems, if you look at it, at you know, they're, they're almost like the musical notes, you know, they're always a set finite, uh, finite number of problem statements which exist. They just have different variations. So the seven can be sort of, you know, combined together to create an infinite soundscape but the foundational notes, musical notes, are just seven. Uh, and that goes with understanding problems or humans as well. You know, the sort of basic driving emotions are pretty much the same. You just need to understand, uh, is this the correct emotion to that particular context, the reasoning why and all of those things. If you just view it from an outside perspective, then the entire sort of space becomes very chaotic, very noisy. You know, you never know as to who said what, in what context, uh, what did they really mean? Because a lot of the emotions get sort of misplaced. When somebody says, oh, I don't like this color, you don't really know if it's within the context of um, the sort of screen that they're looking at or the sort of experience or the sort of um, communication that they are looking at. But is it more of a reflective of their own personal bias? You know, is, is it somebody who says, oh, I, I hate pink because, you know, my mother used to dress me up as pink when I was a kid and therefore I have this deep distaste. You know, it's almost got a grounding going almost to a Freudian sense. Therefore, there's a deep distaste of pink. Whereas, let's say there's, there's a new arty sort of show bedroom that, some designer, interior designer has made and they have sort of paired pastel pink with black. For a bedroom, you're like, you know, I'm not sure about the pink. Black, I still find, you know, there might be somebody who wants to have a black bedroom for whatever, you know, nefarious activities that they want to carry out in that room. But the pink does not really make sense. So it's, it's that understanding of saying, you know, is, is this something coming from a deep-seated place? And yeah, instinct is going to take a lot of trial and error. I mean, if, if you're not questioning things and if you're not trying to find answers in your own spare time, I'm not really sure as to 
getting a job as a researcher and then having somebody pay you to make mistakes that's that's you know really nice way to do it but you need to really enjoy uh getting paid to sort of you know indulge in your hobby so to speak so yeah that makes actually very much sense that developing your instincts in your spare time <laughs> because uh, the cost of error especially when we are doing research is uh, can be very high and at the same time at times we wouldn't even know how high is it because we aren't just aware of you know what we just dropped so there was something you mentioned the knee jerk it is sort of like a knee jerk reaction and the answers are very obvious at times can you shed some light on that point it's almost like let's say if if you're looking at building um um a screen where the user has to click on buy and complete the transaction right uh, ideally if you follow the z pattern of consuming the western um you know in the english speaking world where english is the native language the z scanning pattern is what usually the user sort of carries out um and that's why you have the product details right at the top so you sort of look at it and then you just scan through the rest of the page and almost like a raster scan and then you end up at the top right bottom right uh, now let's say for some odd reason you know the designers or the product manager says you know no no you know i want something else to come in here you know the buy button should not be here uh, we want to place it somewhere else or we want to place it in the middle of the button or we just want to place it right next to the product heading itself the product name itself you know cuz we think that will make a good relation between this is the product this is what i want to buy so i'm going to keep it right there um obviously you know as a knee jerk you immediately sort of say but you know that is not how users consume data or um in addition to it you want to keep the action button you know your CTA closer to your thumb rather than having that cognitive load of pushing the button up top it's almost like a knee jerk you know you literally see what is wrong because you sort of are coming in from you know the, the the foundation of having spoken to users in different contexts not specifically with regards to this particular design but you know exactly what they've been mentioning you know as a as a pass away line as a throw away line in terms of what their expectations are what they find comfort you know in terms of you know sometimes it's very difficult for me to move my fingers up there you know i need to hold the phone in one hand and then use the other hand usually i prefer to use doing everything in one hand there are a lot of these sort of insights which never sort of make way in any report hmm you know because they don't satisfy the research objective for which the research was commissioned so a lot of these insights you generally tend to just have uh like you know almost like a garage where all the junk which doesn't find any place but you know and i think it's just an indian mentality thing as long as it's free i don't have to pay for it i know i will make use of it sometimes somewhere or the other right it's almost like a hoarding it's like a hoarder behavior uh that researchers tend to have that they just sort of hoard a lot of these sort of insights in different places if it as long as it's there in a report they sort of get it out of the system but the things that are not on a report is usually the things that stick in their you know back of mind think 
I will find a place for this inside because this is useful, this is meaningful. So those, those are the things that sort of evoke a, almost a knee-jerk response. And because you don't know where most of those insights and because it's almost like a stretch getting the rest of the folks to see, you know, this is actually what, you know, where I'm coming from and this is what they actually meant, which probably validates getting the research sanctioned and getting the work done. But over and above, you already know as to what the responses are going to be. It's just, you're sort of looking at a validation exercise of sorts. Usually in a lot of cases is that you end up doing these validation exercises. It not just validates your initial hypothesis, but you also sort of end up having a lot more richer insight, which gets used in a lot more purposeful manner for, you know, even non-related sort of conversations and everything else. Yeah, I now understand what you're talking about uh, because, you know, certain features or anything that we talked about, I felt that, okay, why is this happening? Like, I mean, this is so obvious. Right. To take a seat back and say, okay, I am the one who is the most in touch with the users. It's positive for my team to think that way. Right. So, yeah. And, uh, yeah, there are so many unsaid things. Uh, That's why report making and knowledge transfer was one of the challenges for me. In the sense, make the data digestible as well as not losing its nuance and it's layered nature at the same time. That was that was really a task. And then I had to first mess my head up and then put my thinking in order because I don't know, that's how the process was for me. First, I would really used to mess things up and then iterate that, okay, after I think this is not working, let's make another iteration and see how it goes. And yeah, maybe you could also talk a little bit about that. that you I know. Think- I think the report writing is usually the easiest bit for me. Um, Usually because for me, report writing is not insight dump of sorts. Like it's not a report which sort of details all the things that you've learned uh, and, you know, understood with in relation to the problem, you know, and outside of it. What we generally tend to do is we tend to build a narrative. And for me, insights is a story, mm-hmm. you know. And this is where I think even the concept of personas came into place in existence, not because designers wanted a muse of sorts for whom they're they're building the products for, but even in terms of understanding the behavior and the insight, they need the backstory. You know, it's almost like you're creating something, you need to know their likes, dislikes. You know, it's almost like creating a movie. You know, you need to know the audience tastes. Mm-hmm. Um, and same goes for report writing as well. You need to know the audience. And ideally, all audiences love a good story, which is why framing the research question in the most clickbaity manner and then taking them through every single insight usually helps and the manner at least in which i tend to prioritize uh, or have the outline of the research itself is in terms of the immediate action items that the insights can have you know usually as a hot fix or something that can be done you know usually post a conversation with the design team or the product team 
before getting disseminated to a wider audience, right? Uh, you want to understand which of these insights have the biggest impact because you already have the laundry list of insights, right? Now you just want to sort of build a layer. You want to layer them in terms of my P0 insights, P1, P2, like the priority matrix that you have that people and product managers use. You generally tend to want to do that in terms of layering insights. And then you want to also build an overarching theme of saying, these are all the insights. If you do this, and that's why these insights take on a larger hue and a spectrum and so on and so forth. Usually having an outline, uh, at least in terms of the structure that you want to present the story and the narrative in helps, helps quite a bit. Mm. Absolutely. I feel that uh, seeing it just as report writing yeah. it makes itself pretty dull and Again, a beautiful example of, you know, mixing your knowledge and not categorizing it. This is for research. This is for story writing. Maybe that was missing somewhere in my end. Ideally, the reports should be fun, should be educative, um, should be something that somebody who reads comic books should find interesting and not just words on media file or your PPT or whatever else it is. So, yeah. Fair point and very, I mean, it makes you think, uh, especially makes you question the conventional way of seeing things. But again, on ground, the reality can be different. I mean, you can be made to restructure that, that, okay, what is this? Make it in points. But yeah. Uh, like I said, I mean, knowing the audience as to who you're setting out and writing for usually answers a lot of questions. In terms of how you want to go about writing, do you want to be using purple prose or do you just want to use bullet points and say ABC and then be done with it? Hmm. Understandable. That is something to retrospect on after this recording, I guess, especially for me. Another question that I had for you, we have discussed on this previously and it was a very interesting discussion. That was the efficacy of the question why and how useful it is when we have to pull out answers from users like is it even valid to ask why to our users like what has been your experience with this question of you know why do you do this why do you like this why i usually tend to use why as my last resort <laughs> um primarily i'm sort of you know always sort of beating around the bush and oftentimes what I end up doing because I'm consciously trying to avoid using any question which either starts or ends with why is that I end up rephrasing the question multiple times the same question multiple different times you know just bases on what they're saying a lot of people when they're responding to questions especially in a one-on-one -on -one, you know it's it's almost done at a rational level People are trying to justify the actions that they've taken, you know, uh, are currently taking or have taken in the past. The emotional aspect of things is usually missing. And that's when usually most of the folks realize that their rational explanation and what they are feeling or what they want to feel, they are almost at loggerheads with one another. And that's when, when you ask them to sort of explain saying what, what, 
you know, makes you think that has caused this sort of dissonance between these two is when my why's come in. Because then even the user or even the research participant or the respondent has also started thinking in why. Why is usually not advocated to be used excessively is primarily because it almost gets annoying after a point in time, almost like a young kid asking an adult saying, why is the sky blue? And it's just a series of whys. Whatever is the answer, you know there's another why coming in. Uh, and that, that's just the lazy way of getting a larger response saying, yeah, okay, you know, when it comes to analysis and synthesis, I don't have to do, I just have to, you know, basically ladder these verbatims and whatever responses the user has given me and then figure out what it actually means and build that narrative. That also leads to a fair bit of shutting down from the research participants' mindset. Then they just want to ensure that the response that they're giving does not lead to any why. Then it becomes even more rationalized rather than an emotional or a sensorial space uh, that you want the responses to be stemming from. It gets completely on the other side and gets even more rational. So a lot of the academic research, if you actually read, people are now recognizing that most of the responses that people have given on surveys or even on you know, experiment exit uh, interviews that these guys carry out when, you know, any experiment has been carried out, whether in psychology or whether in economics or whatever it is, it's a very rationalized response. Because the user knows, like the participant knows, yeah, they're going to ask me what I did. They're going to ask me why I did it. And I'm already going to have this answer sort of ready. So there are very few experiments which sort of take that into account. And those are the really interesting ones because then suddenly you understand saying, ah, okay, so this is what the participant was trying to emulate or aspire to carry out. Yeah, that makes sense. And that way, the problem we have had with economics for so many years that they have assumed the consumer to be rational, that also seeps in, in research. But then again, the iteration of the questions, why, how do we put it, that plays a really big role. And the problem that has at least occurred with me is that this question, why is so popular? We mm. have to know why this is happening. Qual research tells us why it is that way or quality yeah. research tells us the what and qualitative yeah. research tells yeah. us the why. And this why has been embedded so deep into our system that even when I'm taking interviews, there is time constraint. And, you know, even if I don't want to ask why, it just comes out. Okay, why? Why do you think this? Why do you do that? Why? And not proud of it, but it, it just instinct. It has become an instinct. I mean, there, there are more than one ways to skin the cat. You know, uh, there, you know, there are five W's. Why and the what are not the only ones. There are the hows and the what's and the where's. And it all depends as to how you show your mental acumen and how you sort of employ the other uh, W's in play. But yeah, I mean, falling into that vicious why cycle is an easy one to make. And it's a very difficult one to break. Mm. Uh, because, you know, it, it's just that power of that particular question itself. But it also comes with it with the great constraint saying you will hit a dead wall where there are no further responses to why the like the person on the other end 
of the question is just gonna say I don't know. Like it just is. Like I like it because it's good. Like I don't have an answer to why it's good. Like it's good. I like it. The end. If you are saying why is it good, you're just going to get the response saying because it's nice. You know, it's good. You're not going to get anything further or more than that. Probably instead of asking why is it good. The question would ideally be, what about it makes it good? You know, what does this have that you think that others don't have? What is it? Um, how does this make you feel? Those are the sort of questions. Uh, where and when do you suppose, you know, this particular product comes in handy uh, that makes it better than the rest? Those are the sort of different ways in which the why can be addressed. And it will give you a more lucid response rather than a sort of cyclical saying, yeah, it's good because it's nice. It's nice because it's good. And especially when working with children, it's useless to ask why. I mean, I have seen in usability tests, okay, why do you like that? And child is like, I just like it. Why are you asking me again? And because children are so honest, they're like, please stop this. Yeah. Dumbness. Why are you asking me these questions? And it, it, it does help that I do have a six-year-old mind. It's pretty juvenile, so I speak the kid's language. It usually helps in, um, you know, getting the point across even to a 60-year-old. So, yeah. So, there this mentality works that, you know, you actually, sometimes it's better to know just what elements are working and put it out there. I read this in this uh, in a book by Nassim Taleb. I don't uh, remember the title, but it said that, you know, it was about acupuncture. Uh, hmm. that if uh, pricking a pin in your index finger is somehow helping with your migraine, then just do it. Don't ask how is it happening? Why is it happening? Just for that relief, do it for hmm. the now. <laughs> don't just question it just because it looks illogical to you. So, yeah, this was very insightful and, yeah, we had this probing of this question why had to be done and next time maybe as researchers we'll have to be more aware when we are playing with this question of why. So, thank you so much for that. Another uh, very good point that we discussed about, we have discussed about previously uh, is about researchers speaking different languages contextually like even literally we need to especially in the Indian context that helps a lot and but anyway <laughs> we'll get there someday but contextually because when I just got into user research one of the major learnings I had was that I'm not just advocating for the users I have another set of audience that is my stakeholders and that learning took a little bit of time because I came from a very I don't know all these courses or whatever mm. I was consuming told me mm. that you are the user's voice, you are pitching it to them. Mm. These are your primary, yeah, you are the advocate of users, things around that. And there was this disconnect between me and stakeholders, but then I finally understood that, okay, I am the bridge between the two. I am not an advocate or I am not on someone's side. I'm just a communication channel. But then again, both the parties or different parties that we engage with, marketing speaks a different language, product team speaks a different language, users obviously speak a different language. How do we 
quickly adjust to these languages and translate these languages so that you know everyone is understanding each party's roles it it all depends as to who you speaking with how much are you speaking with it's just like picking up any other language you can either do this actively or you can do this passively most of the languages that i've picked up in the last couple of years is just from passive consumption just listening to people talk and talk and talk understand the cadence you understand the vocab you understand the lexicons that are getting used in what context and what not um and then you just start mirroring because one of the things like you know and it's the most abused term which is fair enough i mean it does have its value as being you know the researcher being an em- uh displaying empathy and towards the user and towards the stakeholder and what not um and one of the key you know one of the cheap hacks of uh, at least creating the illusion of empathy is displaying mirroring behavior and that mirroring behavior need not just be the nonverbal body language cues that you exhibit but it can even extend into the language that you sort of assimilated and absorbed and then you start speaking and then suddenly the other person on the other end say okay this person is speaking my language and i can tell this person lot more things than i initially intended to a lot of things you know just comes from plain observing and just how observant and how quickly you tend to grasp the existing context so yeah it's that that's that's long and short answer of you know it being able to speak different languages because a lot of the at least a lot of the conversations that i've had with other researchers and this is something that i've always failed to understand is that they've always complained about stakeholder buy in and i've never quite understood it you know i probably thought maybe the research methodologies were not sound or something of that sort and then i realized it was none of that it was just that the researchers spoke research language they just spoke their language they didn't bother to change what insights they had to share with the different teams that they are working with like design teams would very very rarely interact with say my business development team and vice versa product team may very very rarely say deal with my front office for example but as a researcher you should be able to sort of explain the same thing and I've, i'm not sure as to there there's this youtube series i don't know which on which channel but they usually get a really good expert on in their field whether it's a quantum mechanics professor whether it's a you know rocket scientist or whoever you know or a um, blockchain expert and what not and they they have to explain what they do starting from a 6 year old all the way to somebody in their middle age uh, the same thing and that's the same sort of approach that researchers have to take i mean you have to be able to explain to what you've learned to a 6 year old and to somebody who may be a noble laureate of sorts and be able to walk away with that certainty that they've gone away with the intended message and not misconstrued what he said to mean something else i mean that's a completely different ball game in terms of how people 
consume insights and think it sort of applies to their product while the researcher obviously means something else. But that's a completely different problem. But yeah, it all sort of stems from the researcher's inability to sort of cater to the language needs of different teams. So I have felt that the problem with that narrative or that idea that speak in layman's terms or how it is misinterpreted is seen very much in our popular culture because we have books like seven steps for this 10 steps for that so that stems another problem of simplifying or dumbing down actually not even simplifying like dumbing down to a level where the essence is lost so Hmm. I mean, how do we even think about it so that to not lose its essence? This was a problem that I sort of struggled with for a fairly, fairly long time. And I still do. In economics, we call this as problem of common knowledge. You know, you recognize uh, 10 rupee to be 10 rupees because that's a value you and I share. You know, it's common knowledge. But the value of a dollar is not common knowledge. You view it in a different lens, I view it as a single dollar. It's no longer common knowledge. So in terms of how we treat money and our uh, approach towards money is gonna be completely different, even though we may be talking about the same number. You may be talking about 10 rupees, I may be talking about $10, but my perspective, right? Um, it, it's not a question of dumbing down, things or you know to the point of it losing its essence or sort of simplifying things it's about understanding what is the existing common knowledge within the team what is it that they understand what are the things that they don't understand not everybody is going to be aligned and on the same page internally different people are going to have different hypotheses you need to be aware of it when you're sort of presenting facts that's for you to gain common knowledge saying okay this is this person's understanding this is this person's understanding and they may both be right it's just on a different level so when the insights are getting directed and being shared it has to be the message has to be massaged accordingly so to speak message has to be massaged (laughs) yeah that's interesting but then again it requires a lot of pondering or just it's not just pondering it's it's just sort of having conversations with people i mean that's what researchers are meant to do and it's just having these conversations sort of arriving at things validating those things not just with the person that you spoke with but with the peers and everybody else so you basically just research you know the hell out of the system Uh, And it's not just limited to users. I mean, if people are misled that research as in user research is supposed to research only users, I think that's that's like the biggest mistake anybody can make, which is why I always view research as research and you research everyone. You research everything. If you think, no, this does not require research because these guys already know it, uh, maybe the biggest mistake anybody makes to start off with absolutely i was actually trying to understand 
why do you view it just as research because to me it's like okay i'm talking to users i'm trying to understand their psychology their habits that's why it's user research if i was in the lab doing some try and trial and error with the chemicals that i have maybe trying to produce some other drug that then i was doing i don't know pharmaceutical research or biochemical research so i was saying it that way search at the end of the day is trying to find answers right if the, if i use the same principles and i start sort of mixing things with the whatever understanding i have i'm still trying to use the same sort of principles that i'm using to sort of understand users understand my stakeholders understand the business the product you know blah 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 the principles all remain the same so the manner in which you sort of approach consume and view the problem and go about finding answers to that is what is research whether you are doing it with chemicals when with inanimate objects with with people with proper real human emotions it's the tools are pretty much the same uh, the guiding foundational fundamental principles remain the same it's just as to how you view it i mean a detective uses pretty much the same tools that a researcher uses it's just that you know they're trying to find who killed uh mrs p body in the kitchen so mm, absolutely i understand it now it was about the principles all along um, so yeah thank you so much for that the next question is about remote research after the pandemic we have seen a cultural shift in how we do research because remote research was need of the hour and now it's a very valid thing to do in many organizations be it because they have financial constraints or physical constraints or maybe they just feel that you know this should only be limited to remote research as it saves a lot of cost and it's not taken as seriously there could be many reasons but we have separate lines between you know remote work hybrid work um, on site work that is going to affect research very differently especially because on site research is a very crucial part of research and when we are doing research in that very natural environment it is very different from what we get in a remote setting this i have observed and experienced personally but then again uh, many organizations are just doing remote research since you have a lot of experiences in on site research and remote research what do you feel we can inculcate in remote research so that we get the closest quality or the best quality of research maybe close to on site research yeah I, i think one of the things that can be carried out to sort of bridge that gap the chasm between on site and remote is to carry out your studies like semiotic understanding of the cultural landscape you know just sort of understanding the um, general marketing communication or the sort of visuals and the sort of news media and the popular media that the general audience consumes in that particular market in that particular geographic location helps a great deal it not just sort of equips you uh, with the lexicon to sort of have and have a crude 
hack to uh, establishing rapport with the user you know when you're trying to elicit deep-seated responses emotional responses to certain elements um, design elements specifically um, it helps you know uh, it also helps in understanding and establishing and sort of elevating the design language itself because almost the first port of call for most research projects is design followed by engineering or few other things but usually at least in my experience most of it usually directed at design thing you know this button is not working so make a new one but for you to understand saying what do buttons in general in that particular geographic location connote how do people react understand what has been the historical significance of buttons in that particular space where all does it make its presence felt not just in the digital environment but even on a day-to-day basis that adds a lot of value um, because those are also the things that you end up consuming almost on a subconscious level when you're on site you are sort of looking at the posters which are sort of stuck on walls you are sort of overhearing passing remarks or conversations which people are listening to while having tea or coffee or by by the roadside shop you do come across all these sort of um serendipitous nuggets of information and semiotic analysis of that particular region per se culturally speaking helps but having said that nothing that anybody does can actually sort of completely erase the distance between on-site and remote Uh, i mean there is absolutely no substitute for sharing the same physical space and air and you know surrounding than on-site yeah in fact this has also helped me when you talk about semiotic analysis although i do have my restraints over that thing as a study which i'll refer to but uh, yeah uh, studying the social media consumption of users has helped me a lot that's for sure in order to understand the position that they're coming from and why are they in my study right now so we used to offer vouchers and the pricing was such that that the average teacher is paid this much in america and how do we price it accordingly so that you know people actually turn up uh, so that is one economic hint we had mm. and that's that was what was leading our research because we had like zero show up rate at some okay. point till some point of time so yeah and then you know just going on social media seeing what they're talking about how is it going that also actually helped quite a lot in my experience i agree with that point uh, but then again the things that you said about semiotic analysis the problem with that is we have a tendency to read too much into things and i attended my sociology classes in college uh, at that point of time i questioned whatever they were saying a little bit mm. but then i just sort of went with the flow that you know oh yeah i never noticed this i don't know if i just wanted to agree with my teacher but now when i look back at it i'm like maybe we were just reading too much into it so maybe we can be careful while treating that semiotic analysis part because it's a very heavy academic word 
it because it is so academically in tune a lot of people tend to find it an inaccessible thing it does require considerable effort on the researchers side to sort of understand the entire cultural landscape and it is almost a research exercise by itself which is why i say you know it has to be carried out in parallel while the studies are being done not just with you know it's more of adding garnish for you to sort of understand it effectively like the role of salt in food people will eat the food but the salt is what makes it good or bad too much of it is bad too little of it people complain just the right amount it just sort of hits that spot and that is what that cultural understanding aided by carrying out semiotic analysis and discourses and reading up what others have done you know venturing out and exploring things on your own aids in a bit in finding that right mix of adding that bit of cultural context so to speak yeah i now understand that because the salt analogy is really good what we want to make sure is that we don't end up making that semiotic part the entire dish because that can be very dangerous and i have seen that i have experienced that so yeah thank you for bringing that up now i have said a lot of times you know we need to think over this we need to ponder over this one of the things i love about this profession is that i am talking to a lot of people i am understanding so many things at the same time it requires me to take a step back and introspect whatever information i have just look at it through different angles introspection is such an important part of this entire process but i don't feel it is discussed that much i don't know what's the reason because what is it is it just my personal experience or because without introspection i cannot see myself doing good research we have to think about it at different angles so what do you feel about introspection and research introspection is a masochist tendency that people tend to exhibit it is not meant for all it's a tiring uh, exercise but one that bears a lot of fruit but again it's, it's not meant for everybody like i said i mean one of the reasons and you know this is just a, like a call back to the initial conversation that we had uh, was the fact that one of the reasons i don't have many friends is primarily because i end up asking a lot of questions to them that have been annoying me and i have not been able to find answers for myself and because i tend to torture myself my friends are no different right i that torture sort of extends to them as well they get nagged they get annoyed and they sort of experience like one tenth of what i generally put myself through when i'm sort of searching for an answer into my own behavior having introspected your own behavior and everything it does add value cuz it sort of gives you the understanding of what made you feel and why were you feeling a particular manner in response to a stimuli and you can then check with others if that's a case with everybody else or if you are a one off case and that that usually helps in carrying out conversations that helps in understanding what people are truly saying because if if you don't really know what 
you're talking about without thinking or feeling, then, you know, it, all, it almost becomes the very transactional sense. And that's also one of the reasons as to why people tend to take the help of whys. Because it's very simple. It's a transactional thing. You, I'm going to ask you why. You're going to give me a response to it. If I deem it to be worthy response, I move on to the next question. You know, I don't dig deep enough into what prompted uh, you to sort of respond in that manner. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend introspection, but I would encourage everybody to sort of give it a go. Now, talking about it in the context of research, and yeah, I have uh, faced this personally as well, is that when I am not aware of something, it in some form comes me to bite back. And when that thing is bitten, I'm like, oh no, this actually I let it go in passing. I mean, we don't need to capture every thought. Just some few things that at some point of time in the future turn out to be so important and then you beat yourself more. That usually, like I said, I mean, again, it all circles back into building that instinct. And which is why I said, I mean, if, if you can experiment on yourself, ask yourself these questions and how you would respond to these questions that you expect others to answer usually is a good litmus test. But it also sort of warrants oneself to be extremely aware of one's own biases, whether you're sort of reacting or responding to certain questions framed a particular manner, you know, whether you're subjecting yourself to own positional bias and everything else that comes along with it. If you can sort of experiment on yourself, give that space to build that instinct, then I think it should be a lot better. This was an interesting way of looking at things. And the fact I like the most is that not drawing lines between your profession and your personality that helps especially when being a researcher because whatever innate quality i have is displayed or creeps in in everything i do even though however hard we try to be smart or be nice so yeah that surely helps and you know that's the thing with being a researcher you have to be really wary of when you're doing things to look nice because you have to present something in meeting and when you're being honest to a research because in so many years I have realized one thing that the need to look nice in front of other people is not a small thing. It, yeah. it has actually driven history and it has driven so many big decisions. So be careful of that in yourself and others as well. That helps me in being honest with my research and whatever I'm doing. Why am I presenting it? Is Does it make me sound smart or is it actually yeah. helping in some way? One thing I have found really interesting in your career path is that you have worked as an independent researcher for a very long time. Whenever I have thought about my career as a researcher and the kind of market I jumped into, it was like, always being affiliated with an institution with a long-term vision just being employed and never looking at it independently or as a freelancer i would say so what has your experience been of being an independent freelance researcher what were the best and the worst things about it compared to now that you are 
working in in Mobi as a full time lead user researcher. So, how are things now and then? If anybody is thinking of becoming a freelancer, um, don't do it for the money because there's none in it. I use I I was a freelancer because I wanted to do other things other than just research. I wanted to write books. I wanted to travel. I wanted to write movies, scripts, and whatnot. Which all of which I did. The best part about taking a freelance work is that it gives you this complete agency over declining work, and you can decline and you can say no if the project or the problem statement is not exciting, not a space that you want to work in. You can just say no. Nobody's gonna. Hold it against you. They will find somebody else who will do it. It's just not going to be you, and you're going to be happy that you're not working on something that you're going to find yourself being miserable working on. That's the best part. The worst part, obviously, it's always you know chasing for payments and waiting and hoping that they come on time and you can make rent. But overall, yeah, don't do it for the money. If that's what people are thinking, that I can sort of eke a living out. By doing freelance, yeah, you can, but it's a struggle. And have you noticed any change in your behavior or anything in yourself when you were working as a freelancer and now that you're working full time, especially in context with research? One of the biggest changes is the fact that as a freelancer, I used to be completely divorced. Once I've handed in my report, once I've shared my feedback and insights and recommendations with the client, I used to just walk away. I know which ones are going to get picked up, which ones aren't, because that's the sort of structure we've always sort of followed. But now uh, that I've aligned, there is this drive to make products better than what they were yesterday, which was absent when I was freelancer. I was very happy because you know there's other things which used to occupy my mind space. But now, because you know the set set of problems and the set of products that we are working on, uh, I find them to be intuitively interesting and challenging space to be in. And yeah, so I usually find myself now pushing other folks to sort of pick up the slack and just come up with more better, interesting research questions because most of them have been answered. That was uh, pretty insightful and interesting. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. So we have come to the end of our episode. Thank you so much for your time. It was a really interesting conversation, and as expected, we exceeded our time. But it was all worth 